Well, if you haven't already, please turn to Ezra chapter 1. We, we, are starting, we are starting a new series in the book of Ezra, which is about a third of the way through your Bible, halfway through the Old Testament, right after Chronicles, Second Chronicles, right before Nehemiah. That's about all I can give you right now. We, we will be in Ezra chapter 1 and 2, and we're going to actually be in the book of Ezra for the next two months. Well, l- let me just tell you a, a sort of brief story. Uh, in my early 20s, I met uh, a young woman who, in some ways, was unlike anyone I'd ever met before. I became friends with this, uh, this woman, and she was the first missionary kid that I'd ever been friends with. Now, one of the interesting things that I, that I learned as we became friends is that missionary kids who live most of their lives in a culture that maybe they weren't born in, they really don't fit in either cultures. So, so my friend was American, but she didn't really think American or, or act like an American, at least from her perspective. But she also wasn't European. And so she was out of place in both worlds. Now, missiologists call these kids third culture kids because they don't fit in their first culture or their second culture. They're sort of a combination of the two. They're, quote, third culture kids. And so I learned that if you really want to annoy a third culture kid, a missionary kid, just ask them this simple question. Where's home? Where are you from? Now, for most of us, maybe that's a simple question to answer, but, but not for a third culture kid. That's a complicated knot to untie. Well, they're not the only ones that have historically felt sort of out of place in this world. Third culture kids might be kind of keenly or acutely aware of that feeling, but, but God's people have always felt out of place in this world. It's why Peter, in his epistle, calls the church, Christians, strangers and exiles. We've always been strangers, out of step with our culture. Well, this morning, as we begin looking at the book of Ezra, we find God's people not in the promised land, not initially. Initially, we find God's people in exile. They're feeling out of place in the world. For 70 years, they've been in exile in Babylon. And they've been pressed on every side to to begin to wonder, who are they? Is God going to come through? Has God forgotten them? That's their question. They're feeling homesick. You could put it that way. And if you come here this morning, I, I wonder, do you, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt out of place in this world? A, a stranger? Have you ever felt like you're homesick even though you're home? Have you ever felt like a stranger in your own family because you now are a Christian? Well, the book of Ezra is for you. It's for all of us. Because this book really is, it's sort of a road map how to get home. 
Over the next few months, we're going to be looking at this book. Maybe it's a book you're not very familiar with. It is a wonderful book. I've had the blessing of of just being in it the last six months. And it is a, just a treasure. It is a gift to us as the church. And this morning, what we're going to do as we look at chapter 1 and chapter 2 is we're going to discover this simple yet profound big idea. It's going to be on the slide and on the screen behind me. The big idea is that God sovereignly and faithfully renews his people. We're going to see that, that first phrase, the sovereign and faithful God in chapter 1, and then we're going to see how he renews his people in chapter 2. Now, before we jump into the text, I, th- I think a, a bit of history is in order to sort of get our bearings, our, our little biblical legs, not sea legs, but biblical legs under us. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah actually is one story. It was written on one scroll. It's, it's sort of one book originally. And it tells the the story of God's people returning from exile as they rebuild, as they resettle in Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the wall in Nehemiah. Now, Israel originally, if you can remember, it was one nation. And then after Solomon died, the nation was ripped apart in two. And so you had the northern tribe, Israel, And that was made up of ten tribes. And then to the south, the southern tribe, Judah, was made up of two tribes. In 722 BC, the northern tribe fell to the might and power of the Assyrians. And about 150 years later, Babylon comes and they sack the southern kingdom. And if you really want to read a, a, a good description of what happened in that, uh, that second siege when Babylon came to Jerusalem, if you want to read and learn more this, this week, I just recommend read the book of Lamentations this week in your quiet time. That, that book is a haunting description of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. Well, maybe you're wondering this morning, okay, yes, the, the Assyrians came and then the Babylonians came. Why? Why? Well, actually, it's really quite simple. And, and if you read pretty much any of the minor or the major prophets, you'll find out that, that really God raised up the Assyrians first and then the Babylonians second to judge God's people for their sins, for their idolatry. Actually, the book of Ezekiel, um, if you're, the men went through it last year, and, and at one point in the book of Ezekiel, it's described as the land as vomiting God's people out as a result of their sin and idolatry and sp- sort of spiritual adultery. And so, n- not only did Babylon come, kind of destroy Israel, conquer Israel, but they actually carted them off. And so for 70 years, we have Israel, God's people, in captivity, in exile. And then something wonderful happens in 538 B.C. Now, now God's people probably didn't see, they might have because there, there were some prophecies um, in Isaiah about this, but, but they might not have realized how wonderfully powerful this was. But in 538 B.C., Persia comes on the scene. King Cyrus, he, he, he becomes the dominant king. 
and he and Persia conquer Babylon. They, they sort of consolidate power and they become the world dominant superpower and Babylon is no more. God kind of rose up Babylon to judge Israel, but, but, but it's very clear that Babylon's not going to get a pass on this. Babylon too is going to be judged, and they are judged, and they're judged by the Persians and King Cyrus. So, so that's a bit of the history that sets us up for verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Ezra. And what we learn, if you look there in verse 1, is that Cyrus comes on the scene and he, in his first few years, makes this proclamation. He makes this edict. And we read about it in verse 2. Now, starting in verse 2 down to verse 4, he makes a policy. Think of it as like a foreign policy. And this foreign policy that Cyrus makes, it's very, very different than what the Babylonians did. So Cyrus makes this policy that says he's going to send exiles back. He's going to send them back, including Israel, to go back to their land. Now, he's doing this as a strategy. He's doing this to say, okay, you know, I'm the power, you're still in my kingdom, but I want you to go back to rebuild because as you go back, you're going to be more loyal to me. Not only that, but but I want you to rebuild your temples and you can go worship your gods. He was sort of a, a pragmatist. And said, you know, go, go, go worship your gods. Just make sure your gods give homage to me. So don't be confused. Cyrus, he's not a follower of God. He's just a religious pragmatist. So from his perspective, the, the more gods that pay tribute to him, the more loyal people are in his kingdom, in his realm, the stronger his empire will be. Right? So, so he actually, if you look down in verse 7, he bankrolls this. He he gives them back religious objects that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians took. He gives them back to them. You know, there's an old saying, you got to spend money to make money. Well, Cyrus is thinking, you got to spend a little bit of money in order to grow my kingdom. And so Cyrus makes this grand gesture with this grand edict. And so verse 5, we learn that the leaders of the house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levite, along with this massive amount of wealth, we see that in verse 9 and 10, they begin to march back to Jerusalem to rebuild and to resettle. Now this is amazing, right? This is amazing. We we might not realize it. We might like, oh yeah, yeah, they're coming back from, from exile. But this is utterly amazing. For 70 years, they've been in exile. I mean, just think about being carted off by a foreign nation and not allowed to gather as a church, right? Their worship was centralized in the temple in Jerusalem. So when they're in Babylon, they can't worship God. At least they thought. I mean, we haven't been able to gather in a building for five months and think about how sort of disorienting that's been, but then just think about that for 70 years without any technology and all the freedoms that we have, they didn't have any of those. And year after year after year, they're wondering, is God going to come back? And so right here through this edict, we have go back, rebuild, resettle. This is amazing. Utterly amazing. 
that a foreign king would allow the exiles to return. And yet, how does this happen, right? How is it that this takes place? Is, is this just the, the goodwill of Cyrus? Well, well, actually, our text tells us really clearly how this happens, why this happens. And we see it in two places. I want to point them out to you. We're, we're gonna, I'm going to read verse 1 and verse 5. And as I do, see if you can detect how the author, uh, author is theologically framing this, how the author is interpreting these events, connecting these events. Verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, see if you can detect the same sort of language. Verse 5. Then rose up to the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So why does Cyrus, king of Persia, make this edict? Why does Israel begin to march back to Israel and Jerusalem to rebuild and resettle? It's quite simple. God stirred up their hearts. Which is a, a, you know, a metaphorical way of saying that this all happened because God willed it. God sovereignly decreed it. God's hand guided it. This whole section, this whole chapter, really the book of Ezra, and if you think about it, you just step back, the entire Bible does not make sense unless God is sovereign. Which is a fancy word. It's like a $10 word. But really, it just simply means that God is fully and finally in control. God reigns over all creation. There's nothing outside of his control. From the heavens to the subatomic atoms. God reigns over them all from A to Z. So Cyrus, he's a king, but he's not the true king here, is he? He's not ultimately in control. God is the true king. And so Cyrus's edict, he makes it. He makes this edict. He thinks it's a good edict. He thinks it's a great foreign policy. And, and we've actually seen many, many nations, like Alexander the Great uses the same sort of idea. Right? This is good foreign policy in one sense. And so it makes sense that he makes it, but ultimately he makes it not because it's the wisest thing to do. He actually makes it under the direction of God himself. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. God not only raised up the Babylonians, not only did he raise up the Assyrians in judgment over God's people, now God raises up the Persians and King Cyrus as an act of his divine mercy in order to bring God's people back out of exile. Now, if you keep flipping in your Bibles and you arrive to the, the New Testament, You'll note that nothing changes. This is how the Bible frames God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I just want to point out one illustration, maybe, maybe one of my favorite stories. It's in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. 
And you have Peter and you have John who are in prison for preaching the gospel. Ultimately, they're released. And they go and they report back to other Christians about what had happened. And when this happens, they respond with corporate prayer. And this is what they pray. They first call upon the Sovereign Lord. That's the name that they pray to, the Sovereign Lord. And I just as a quick application as a side, every time you pray, you're praying to the Sovereign Lord. Prayer should be a common thing, but prayer shouldn't be a light thing. When we're praying to God, we are praying to the Sovereign King of the universe. How amazing is that? So they pray to this sovereign king, this sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, the God who spoke by the Holy Spirit through David. And then they quote Psalm 2, and then they pray these words. And I just want you to look at the theology communicated in this prayer, verse 27 of chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Verse 28. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Even the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was conspired by men, and yet at the exact same time, it was nevertheless willed by the sovereign power of God himself. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, it's my contention and the contention of this church that there's no accident as to why you're here this morning. 2,500 years ago, like I said earlier, a man, a king named Cyrus, made an announcement. An announcement that God's people can return back to their land. That's a wonderful announcement, but it's not the greatest announcement that a king has ever made. There was a greater announcement made, not just by a king of a country, but by the king of the universe. And that announcement also said, that you can return from exile. Our sin, all sin, exiles us. Now, that might be weird, but when you step back and think about it, it makes perfect sense. All of our sin from gossip and lying and stealing and pride, all sin isolates, right? It alienates us from people. And ultimately, it alienates us from God. That's our greatest exile. Our greatest exile isn't from geography or land. Our greatest exile is that because of our sin, we're alienated from God. And yet, because of Jesus Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, you can come home from exile. You can return back to God. Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection purchased a way back to God. So, If you want to know more about this gospel, this news, the greatest news, I'd love to talk to you. Just just find me. Or or maybe better yet, just find someone in this room. Find someone else if you want to talk about it. Grab coffee, go on a walk, whatever. This is the greatest news. If you're not a Christian today, that's in many ways the only news we want you to hear this morning. That you can find God. 
And it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, now, now for the Christian here this morning, I just wonder, are you comforted by this sovereignty that God is described here in, in Ezra chapter 1? I mean, we, we, if you just step back, all of us have fears. And I think all of us have different fears. And the, these past six months have, have kind of illuminated many of our fears. And yet, the older I get, the more I realize that God's sovereignty is a balm to my own personal fears. And let me just apply it to one aspect of our life. Right? We're going into an interesting season as, uh, as a country, right? In November, there is an election. We're going to vote for many, many candidates. You know, local, state, let alone a presidential election. You know, some of the candidates we vote for will win. Some might lose. And yet, regardless of what happens, whatever president or senator is elected, God is still sovereign. Which doesn't mean that you don't vote, and it doesn't mean that you are not thoughtful in your voting. It just means that regardless of what happens, God is sovereign. He's not more or less sovereign depending upon who wins the election. God is sovereign. God is able to shoulder our concerns and fears whatever happens come November. The Lord is sovereign. But then notice, go back to verse 1. There, there's one more aspect. It's similar to God's sovereignty, but it's, it's enough different that I want to point it out to you. God's sovereignty is matched with God's faithfulness. I, I think they're almost like dance partners. Right? God is sovereign, and yet secondarily, God is faithful. Verse 1, let me read it once again. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. There's a simple phrase there, that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. Now, what's, what's this saying? It's simply saying this, that when God says something, that when God talks, when God speaks, when God promises to do something, he's going to do it. This is just talking about God's faithfulness. The, the, the prophecy here in chapter 1 that's alluded to is in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11 and 12. You, you can flip there if you want. We're not going to be there long, so I can read it for you. This is the prophecy alluded to that God spoke before uh, um, Jerusalem was uh, destroyed. Jeremiah the prophet, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he prophesies this. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland. With these nations, and we will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it a desolation forever. Now, there's actually many places in which a, a similar prophecy is made. You can find them in Isaiah and uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel. But, but, but lest we miss the point, what we're learning here, what the author is saying as he connects Jeremiah with Ezra, is that God said he would do it, 
And here it is. God did down to the very calendar year, exactly 70 years later, and here it is, their return. What God says he will do, God will do. God is faithful. Now, we live in a world of unfaithfulness, in a world where where, where people, and let's be honest, us too, we say one thing and do another. But God, what he says he will do, he does. And so in light of that, you can trust this God. He is worthy of your trust. This is just one testimony among thousands upon thousands upon thousands of testimonies of God's faithfulness. Is there something you you need to trust God with in this season? Some fear, some worry. Your experience is screaming at you, I don't know if I can trust God this time. Well, let Ezra chapter 1, specifically verse 1, remind you that God is trustworthy. God is faithful. What God says, God does. God, by his sovereignty and his faithfulness, now he does something. Let's look at chapter 2 briefly. Now, chapter 2, we did not read. If you look at it right now, you might think, I'm grateful that we didn't read it. I tried to read it out loud. 80% of it, I couldn't read the, the names. I would butcher it, right? And so maybe if you're reading this in your quiet time, you'd go, all right, I'll skip that and go back to chapter three. But, but we need to slow down here. There's actually gold here. If you get to the end, you'll, you should laugh at that. All right, there's, there's good stuff here and it actually communicates a really important truth that we need to apply to our lives this morning. So, chapter 2, you could think of it this way. You could think of it as a roll call, right? Remember when school, when you sort of had school and and your teacher would take roll, right? Take attendance. That's sort of what's going on here. This is is the, the teacher taking attendance for those who are coming back out of exile. So in verse 2, we find the major leaders. Then, starting in verse 3, you have a list of of names, a list of families, a list of tribes, all the way down to verse 35. Then in verse 36, you have a list of priests. Then, starting in verse 40, you have a list of Levites. Then, starting in verse 43, you have a list of temple servants. Then, starting in verse 55, you have a list of Solomon's servants. Think of those as altar boys of the temple. Then in verse 59, you have an actual, uh, a sort of interesting list. Here, starting in verse 59, you have a list of all those people who, in some ways, uh, you know, forgot their, intra- they, did, they don't have their Ancestry.com code, and so they can't figure out who their family is. They, they can't trace their genealogy. And so they're coming back to Israel, but, but there's some question about if they're really Jewish. And so you have them listed out as well. They, they had been in exile so long they lost their passport. And then after those names are listed, we arrive at verse 64, where we learn that, that all those who, who had assembled together, it, it, the number is more than 40,000 people. 
not including singers and servants and animals. I mean, this is a pretty large convoy. It's a pretty large resettlement project. Well, this large group whom God sovereignly and faithfully stirred up in order to rebuild and resettle, we arrive, they, they arrive in verse 68. And having arrived, they then take up a free will offering, meaning you, you are free to give. It's, they passed the baskets and said, if you're able to give, if you have the means to give, if you've got the finances to give, give. And many, many did. They gave lots of gold, right? You might look down and go, what's a derrick of gold? You don't need to worry. Just know that there's 61,000 derricks, right? That's a lot of derricks of gold. So I want to point out a few things in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we have all these people's names called. We have people, we have tribes, we have leaders, we have various priests, we have Levites. Basically, we have the living ingredients necessary to reconstitute God's people. That's what we have in chapter 2. They needed Levites. They've got them. They needed priests. They've got them. They needed servants uh, in the temple. They've got those. They needed various tribes. They've got those. They've got the living ingredients in order to reconstitute as God's people when they resettle. So what chapter 2 is saying is simply this. Even though they were in exile, even though they were scattered, God's people are still God's people. And he hadn't forgotten them. The, the, the exile was a horrific thing. It was a tragic thing. But it could not stamp out God's people. And let me just say, no power can stamp out God's people. Just look at church history. Look at all the things that rose to power that tried to stomp out God's people. And they all failed. Rome couldn't do it, though they tried. Islam tried to do it, but they couldn't do it. And then you just go through history, right? The Enlightenment tried to do it and failed. Darwin, maybe, or Marxism, liberalism, secularism. Nothing can stop God's people. God will have a distinct people. And though some fall away, there always will be a remnant. Jesus himself said that I will build my church. This is one of the great promises of the New Testament. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overtake her. That's God's sovereignty announcing that he's going to build the church. He'll always be building the church until his return. And we just learned earlier that when God says he's going to do something, you can take that to the bank. He will be faithful to accomplish that. In many ways, this is the great promise of the Great Commission, that God will build his church. As we send out missionaries, as we support missionaries, this is the promise they put in their back pocket, that in every tribe, tongue, and nation, there is a people, there is a person. And so a missionary's job description is just simply this, just to roll call it really is. It's just to call out God's people because there's going to be a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so they go to every tribe, tongue, and nation 
And they declare the gospel. And by the sovereign power of God, see God's people being called out. There will always be a remnant. God will have a distinct people. No exile can can, can stomp this out. No power can thwart God's plan. But I just want to point out one more thing in chapter 2, and that's, but, but, but how is God going to sort of, um, you know, rebuild his church here? How is he going to um, bring back the exiles and, and, and sort of reconstitute his people? Now, chapter 2, if you're just looking at it, it might look really impressive, right? Oh, that's a big, they've got a lot of gold, it looks like. They've got a lot of people, it's not impressive. It's far from impressive. And let me just point out one, one way we know this is not impressive. Go to, go to verse 36. You see in verse 36 a list of priests? Well, if you go back and, and read in, in 1 Samuel, David actually organized priests into 24 family groups. And he turns off the duties so that each family can kind of take turns in their priestly duties. And now we come and there's only four families. From 24, whittled down in the exile to four. Chapter 2 is a, actually a pretty small, unimpressive, kind of pitiful description of the exile's return. It's not just a description of the remnant. Think of it this way. It's a description of the remnant of the remnant. This is just one piece of a bigger pie of God's people. And that is how God would reconstitute his people. That's how God would build his church through this tiny remnant. Isn't that how God works, though? God takes small things. God takes unimpressive things. God takes you know, things that the world would laugh at and that's the very thing that God uses in order to accomplish his will. I mean, just think of biblical history. God takes an unlikely pagan named Abraham, uses him in a mighty way. God uses an unlikely prisoner named Joseph. God uses an unlikely stutter named Moses. Remember, remember when we preached through uh, Judges? God whittles down Gideon's army to just a few hundred people. Pretty unimpressive army. And then we get to the ultimate expression of this, the unlikely Jesus Christ himself, who, whose power is displayed not in great wealth or great influence or traditional might. No, it's ultimately in his humility, which is most clearly displayed in his own death and resurrection. You want to see the power of God? Look no further than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, how God works might shock the world. It most definitely is counterintuitive. And yet, it shouldn't surprise us that here in Ezra, God used this remnant of a remnant, and that's his building block to rebuild and refashion his people. This is how God works, taking small things, unimpressive things, and doing amazing things. Now, I, I don't have to remind you that our church is not the biggest church. 
Our church is not the most impressive church. Our church doesn't have the biggest budget. You don't have the greatest preacher or pastor. And yet, we, as unimpressive as we might be in light of all of maybe church history, I think there's something so encouraging about this because we are the very church. We are the very type of people whom God loves to use. And, and, and really, the, the reason is very simple because unimpressive people can't steal glory from God, right? right? You've been in those situations where like, God, if you don't show up, I'm, I'm, I'm hosed, right? And then when God does show up, you go, why well, wasn't me? God did this in Ezra. And so if you're here today and you're thinking, no, God can't use me based on my story, based on my sin, based on my history, based on my weaknesses, let me just tell you, you are the exact person God loves to use. God loves to use the unimpressive, the weak, the unskilled as a direct way of displaying his glory. God's not looking for impressive people. I don't think God's even looking for impressive churches. God's looking to display his glory, his sovereignty, his faithfulness as unimpressive people are faithful. That's our task. And so here in chapter 2, we see God renewing his people, bringing them back out of Ezra as an extension of his sovereignty and faithfulness. He rebuilds his people, and he does so like a mustard seed. And here, starting in Ezra, we have God's people returning home. But, but let me just spoil the ending for you. They return home. but they're still homesick. They're still wanting something more. And that should make sense to us because at the end of the day, Israel, like God's people, they've, they've always been third culture kids. They've always not fit in this culture because they were made for a world to come. Let's pray. Lord, we pray to you as the sovereign Lord. Lord, we have so many things that, that in many ways as we look out, they can seem insurmountable. And we have fears and worries. And yet in, in the midst of all of that, Lord, we pray that you would comfort us, that we would cast our fears and burdens on you. Lord, we pray, Lord, that, that you would remind us that no matter what our story is, that you can still use us. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that, that in this season we would press into you, that we would learn from you, that we would grow as we interact with your trustworthy word. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that we might grow in a deeper appreciation and understanding of the wealth of goodness of your gospel truth and apply it as a balm to our souls. And we pray this all in your son's precious name. Amen.